right. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew today. Matthew chapter 26. Now, in Matthew chapter 26, this is really, this is really interesting. I, I've been in this, this little series. It's kind of a, a two-part series. One was at Christmas time. Now this one's at Easter. And all the time I talk about who Christ is and what he came to do, who Christ is, what he came to do, who Christ is, what he came to do. And so at the Christmas time, I talked about who Christ is, and we just called it simply Christmas. And I just walked you through because so many times um, when, we, when we get away from just the simplicity of what the scriptures teach us, traditions kind of take over and, and we're kind of lost in, uh, in, in all of the other things. And so I wanted to do the same thing with Easter. And so what we've been doing with this Easter time is that we talked, we started with the triumphal entry when Christ came into Jerusalem. We talked about that and the questioning. We, we compared Passover because to understand, to understand what Christ came to do, you've got to get a good grasp on Passover. And so we talked last week and I, I got wonderful responses from so many of you about last week. And uh, about the, the picture of Passover and us talking about it and then celebrating it together. And, um, and, and I love that. I just love it when people learn and grow because I've found that faith comes by hearing, hearing by God's word. And that if you hear and understand God's word, then faith has a chance and can grow. Not just to become a believer, but including that. But uh, somebody can grow stronger and mature in, uh, in their belief in who he is. And so, so anyway, so we talked about that last week. Now, with the Passover. And so after they'd sung a hymn, the disciples and Jesus, uh, they got up and they, they, went, to, they went to a place <clears throat> called the Garden of Gethsemane. And today, the, today's title, it's going to be, it's, you, you, when you look at the title, you're going to think, okay, I know where he's going. I don't think you do. Okay, I don't think you do. So you have to hang with me here because we're going to go through some some facts and some thoughts, and then if you if you'll stay with me through what I want to share with you, the end will really come together in kind of a kind of a cool way. So uh, so hang with me here. But today's title is decisions that define Defi- decisions that define. But it's not only the decisions you make because a lot of people in the room have made good decisions. Uh, most everybody in the room have made bad ones, and a whole lot of us have made real bad ones, okay? And, uh, and Jeff, I moved away from that a long time ago. I don't even call that home anymore. All right, good. But, but there's, a, there's a thought here of defi- decisions that define. What is it that defines? I've heard that it's decisions that define who you are. Kind of. You'll see what I mean by that today. But within the story of Jesus here and what he came to do, there are, there are three, three decisions that were made that I want to talk about. First one's a no-brainer, and I needed to cover this just because how can you talk about what Christ came to do without, without Gethsemane? In fact, I have, again, I've had a lot of people line up last night and this morning earlier to talk to me about, you know, wow, Jeff, I have always known about Gethsemane, but I've never understood it. And, uh, and again, that's what, that's what this whole thought is, what Christ came to do, all right? What Christ came to do. And Gethsemane is a big part. In fact, it's a much bigger part than you probably realize. And yet it's usually skipped over except during plays, you know, passion plays and songs. A lot of musicians write about Gethsemane because it is, it's so picturesque, but it's also symbolic. 
So you'll see when we get to it. So I have three decisions that define. Now, you're going to look at, you're going to look at a minute and go, where is he going with this? Okay, keep hanging with me. I keep telling you that because how are these related, all right? You'll see, you'll see in just a minute. Number one is, is just Jesus. This was not a hard outline to come up with, all right? Uh, Jesus, just number one is Jesus. Let's take a look at the decision that, that defined so much. Uh, and it was made in Gethsemane. So let's take a look at it, Jesus. All right, chapter 26 of Matthew in verse 36, it says this, and then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, okay? Gethsemane. Now, the name Gethsemane, uh, obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, and it means, it means oil press or olive press. Well, it makes sense that the Garden of Gethsemane or Gethsemane was located on the Mount of Olives. So, you know, a lot of times we have these picturesque views and thoughts. Well, it would make sense that in the middle of a big olive orchard, there would be an olive press. Okay, when you put all this together, it's like, oh, Mount of Olives. So it's a mountain with olive trees. Got it. Yeah, got it. All right. I have actually been there. You come out of the Eastern Gate, which is sealed today, but at the time of Jesus, it wasn't. You come out of the Eastern Gate and you walk down kind of a little embankment and then you go up the hill, which is the Mount of Olives. And and let me just tell you this. um, It's called the Mount of Olives, but it's really not a mountain. It's more like a hill. I've been there. I mean, it, you know, we ha- I don't know about you, but you have these visions in your mind, you know, as you imagine what these things look like, the Mount of Olives, you know, and you think where I grew up, you think, you know, you think of the Appalachian Mountains, the Smoky Mountains, and, and no, 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 this is just a hill, okay? And uh, it, it really is not even that big of a hill. And so, but the incredible part about the thing over there is that there, it, was, it still has olives, growing there to this day. And one of the most authentic places over there is Gethsemane. Because in a matter of this, because this, this, this hill, this Mount of Olives is not that big. And so there's only a handful of places that this could have been, Garden of Gethsemane. I have been there. It's pretty neat. But I said that Gethsemane was, a, was, it was obviously an olive press. And that Matthew includes the name of the place because of the symbolism that goes with it. So what is, what is an olive press? Okay. Well, obviously, again, there are things that are really, really neat of being able to go there. And I understand everybody can't go, but there are things that you go, ah. Oh. And, and they had unearthed, many of them, but the one that I got to see that unearthed what they called an olive press. So what is an olive press? Well, it looks like this, okay? There is this, there is this kind of this structure, this big stone structure, and they, and they hew it, hew it out. They would cut it to, to form this kind of a platform with a, with a runoff, right? And so, and so in the middle, um, in the middle is this, is this place for this, wooden pole to go up. And then what they would do is, is that it was sloped a little bit, and then you would put a bunch of olives. Okay, this is not just an archaeology message, all right? There's a point to this, so hang with me. 
I just like to make sure you're still hanging with me. All right. So you put all these olives in a bag and you put it in, in, in the bottom of the, of the olive press. And then you, I've seen them. They're incredible. These stones that are rounder in shape. And it has a hole that is cut out in the middle. And so they would pick up this heavy rock and they would put it on top of the pole and they would lower it down on top of the bag of olives. Okay, well, the pressure, the pressure of the rock would cause the olives to split open. And then the oil would run out of them into the vat. And that first stone, this is interesting, uh, that first stone and the olive oil that comes off of the first stone is called virgin olive oil, right? The first, the first oil. And then after a while, they put another big stone on top of it and another one. And the greater the pressure, uh, the more oil spills out until you get to the top. And basically you look down at the bottom and, and you know, and the, the olives are, you know, are flat, Right? So there's this picture of pressure, right? Being put, put through pressure, through the crucible, if you will. And so there's great symbolism with the garden of Gethsemane. There's the garden of the oil press. And you're going to understand a picture here of, of this place and what happened at this place and what it means to be under, under incredible pressure, okay? So basically, let's just continue to read Gethsemane. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, hey, I want you to sit right here while I go over there and pray. So he had 11 with them. Judas had already left and he had 11 with him. So he had eight of them kind of stay at the gate, if you will, or at the entrance to this garden of the olive press, right? And so, um, and so when he goes on in and he takes three with him in verse 37, it says, obviously he took, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Now, this is always interesting. That it seems that Peter and James and John were always included on the extra special things. Uh, don't know totally why that was. Uh, Jesus, I don't know that he had favorites, but he did have those that he would spend other time and extra time with to teach more, to train more, that kind of thing. And so he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul, I just, I just want you to hear this because it's, it's a, picture, it's a picture you need to feel if you've ever been there, which most of us have, not to this extent that Jesus went through, but it says, my soul, it says here, is sorrowful, very sorrowful, and even unto death. So there's so much pressure on him that it's, it's about to kill him. And Jesus is not being dramatic here. 
He's just sharing with them what's going on. The battle was won in, in Gethsemane. After he leaves here, his, his, fate is, his face is intent on the cross. But this is the battleground. And so this picture of the crucible, of the pressure that's weighing down upon the, upon the olives is the same picture of, of this crushing, if you will, weight that is on who Christ is. This is even to the point of that. And this is interesting. He says, remain here. He talks to those three. He says, and watch with me. In other words, have you ever been there? It depends on your personality a lot, but this is most all of us. When you're in a really, really tough spot and the pressure's mounting, um, you want people who are close to you with you. You need them. I think there's a picture of that here. Of course, what did they do? They fell asleep. Yeah. And so they were clueless as to what was going on. But again, this, it's a picture that you need to see, something you need to understand. If you want to understand what Christ came to do, which is what this series is, got to get a good picture of Gethsemane. Because it's basically this pressure. Now, pressure is an incredible thing. Um, and I'm going to share with you some pressures that, are, that don't even compare to this. But I just got to get your mind there. So just kind of bear with me for a moment, right? I remember playing ball that there were several times, you know, that when you're playing in a game and everything, you know, you've played this entire game and the you know, score's tied or whatever it is. And I remember one in particular, everything hinged on this one play. Now, and that one play is just different than all the other ones, right? You can feel it, the pressure. I was watching the basketball games and I'm not a big basketball fan except for the tournament time. And, uh, and I enjoy watching this. But there was this kid yesterday and score was tied or whatever it was. And, and there's not many, there's, not, there's just a few seconds left. And he's an 87% free throw shooter. And all he's got to do is hit one. Now, under normal circumstances, he's going to hit 87% of the time. But when the pressure's on, it changes everything. And you know what he did? He missed them both. 87%. I felt so sorry for the kid. All right? Now, that just pales in significance to this type of pressure. We're talking about pressure over a dumb game. And yes, they're all dumb when you compare them to real life and what really matters. Let's be honest. And I do love it, which I have to keep that in check, all right? But I can say that. I don't get offended. It's a dumb game compared to what life really is. So when you talk about, no, 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 there's no reason to say amen. All right, we don't say amen there. All right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right. So as you think about real pressure, I think about soldiers on battlefields, right? I think about decisions that are made. I think about talking to several of you that 
your parents and and it's, pa- it's way past the time when your child's supposed to be home. I'm talking about those who are waiting on test results. And this pressure begins to mount, right? We understand that picture. And I went through all of that so that you could get a good picture of what happened in the garden. There are not words to describe what happened in the garden. Um, I have studied this for years because I wanted to know. In fact, I'm not an emotional person um, at, at times, but because I had spent lots of years studying this piece, when I was over in Israel, the garden was one of those Garden of Gethsemane, since I know it was probably where it was. It was very authentic to me because I knew what happened there. You know, it must be, well, Jesus prayed there before he was arrested. no. Uh, there's more than that. And he tells you there's more than that. And he talks about even the death. He says, so I need you to watch with me. Well, he went a little further away and it fell on his knees, right? And he prayed. And this is what he said, Father, if it's possible to let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as, as you will. Okay, the mounting pressure. In fact, I'm not gonna turn to it because I've run out of time the last two times. But there's a Luke comparative passage that said that the pressure was so great that, that Jesus, the Jesus blood spilled over into the sweat glands. It's a medical condition with extreme stress and extreme pressure. And so great drops of blood, it says, as he sweated. So when you think of this crucible, when you think of this press, you understand what Gethsemane means now. And Jesus was not afraid of death. But the one thing that, that caused this pressure was that cup. It was the cup that he prayed about three times. The cup. Well, what's in the cup? Well, it's payment for your sins and for mine, right? It is the, it is the payment for, for all of those. And, and the decision to head there and to finally say that, because when you're here, it's the point of no return, right? You have the, you know, it's, it's, it's he, he's just a few hours from being on the cross. And so I want you to see that it was just not a no-brainer. There was great temptation here because Jesus said it often to his disciples. I need you to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. So this was a, this was a major time, you know, and that is decision time is always the major time. I don't know about you, but I can be as, as, as headstrong as I need to be when I know I'm headed in the right direction. But indecision will kill you every time. But if you know you got the decision, then you don't look to the right, you don't look to the left. After the decision's made, you throw it all out the window and you say, okay, this is where I'm going, okay? And so after the decision was made, we are, we don't, we are, not, we are not told that Jesus has any more of this pressure. Why? Because when it was done, it was done. But the temptation here is, is an incredible one. 
And I don't understand all of this because I don't understand a lot of the foundation of it. Uh, and, and you really don't either because there's no way you can understand the picture of, of deity and, and humanity. And, but the picture here was him being crushed in his humanity. But what does that look like? I can't tell you. Nobody can really tell you other than it was real. And the picture of it was real when what was happening here in the garden, the cup, right? And he was going to drink it um, so that you wouldn't have to drink it. The only person that understands what's in that cup are those who are paying for their sins themselves, right? And so when you think about what's in that cup, you're talking about multiplied many times over because those who put their faith and trust in who Christ is, he drank it for you. It's an incredible thing to think about. But that's what he meant by the cup. Okay, that's what he meant by the cup. And when he came back to the disciples, what did he find? He found them sleeping, right? He said to Peter, so couldn't you watch just for an hour, right? And it says that he went back, right? Watch and pray that you'll enter into temptation. And, he, and obviously, Obviously, he said the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I can do a whole message on spirit is willing, flesh is weak. Whole message. You ever been on a diet? Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. You got to, that's just a silly understanding of it, but that's just a microcosm of the bigger look. Some of you, that might not be your issue, but all of us have issues. And the picture here is he's looking at Peter and saying, you know, that part of you, the spirit, you want to be who God wants you to be, but there's weakness that in the flesh here, the, the thought is the sinful nature and the battle that goes on. Paul talks about that battle in Romans when he says, the things I want to do, I wind up not doing. The things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. He says, oh, wretched man am I, uh, that I am. And, uh, but he understands the battle that goes on between those who are his it's an incredible thing, but again, it's another message. I gotta, I gotta move on past that. So, so it looks at that. And again, the second time he went away and he prayed basically the same thing. And um, Father, if you, you know, this can't pass from me unless I drink it, then your will be done. He came, he came back to them and their eyes were heavy, heavy. They were sleeping again. So leaving them, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. And, um, and he came to the disciples and said, sleep, you know, sleep and take your rest later on. Uh, the time's at hand. So after the third time, he came out and, Lord, this is yours. Father, it's what you want me to do. This is what I'm going to do. So the decision was made. But I want you to see that the pressure was real and was powerful because he could understand what was about to happen. And so when you think about this, a big crowd came up, right? And, um, and what had happened? I, I want to go ahead and point this out because it'll come up in just a minute. Well, what happened? This crowd came out to arrest Jesus. And, you know, what, if you know Peter, he, uh, he pulls his sword out, right? And he whacks off this guy's ear. And, you know, and he didn't go up and go. <laughs> uh, you know, the guy, the guy ducked, you know, and he was going for his whole head, right? You know, it's not one of those things where you say, oh, Peter, why would you hurt that? No, no, no. He was going for the head. So, and the guy ducked and, and Jesus looked at Peter and says, put it away. 
And he looks at Peter and says, hey, think about this. He says, don't you know that I've got legions of angels at my call? I, I, can, I can control this situation if I want to. So the decision been made. I'm going willingly because this is the Father's will that I drink this cup. Am I not going to drink it? They didn't understand. Disciples didn't understand. But that's what happened. And the decision that Jesus made has had repercussions on all of us that are his. He drank it. He, he, he drank it. Is that word? Drank it. Drank it. He drank it so that you wouldn't have to. It's incredible to think about. So Gethsemane is an important place. So number one is Gethsemane. First decision that defined. Number two is Judas. It's Judas. Now, this is where you're going to have to hang with me and, and, and just wait until the end until I pull them all together. But Judas, uh, what did Judas, who, who was Judas? Judas was, obviously, he is the, the, the world's most well-known betrayer, okay? Uh, whenever you think about a Judas or Judas's kiss or whatever, uh, it's just always a symbol of betrayal. And, uh, but I think it's also interesting that we're there were two, and I want to go ahead and let you in on a little bit so you can follow along maybe better with me. There were actually two of Jesus' disciples that betrayed him, right? It was Judas and Peter. But only one is known as a betrayer. Only one's bad decision defined who he was. Because when you think of Peter today, you don't think of a betrayer or a denier. You think of someone that turned it around and didn't allow that decision to define who he was. How did he do that? That's what we want to talk about just for a minute. So now you understand decisions that define, they don't have to necessarily define you. But it's what you let define you. It's pretty interesting to think about. So let's walk through it. So what did he do? Well, what did Judas do? Well, Judas in chapter 26, I believe it is, verse 14 is that it up there? Yeah. Then, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, uh, says he went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they basically said 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought to an opportunity to betray Christ. Now, the thought is, is that if you ever stop long enough to ask yourself the question, why would he do that? Because the motivation had to be there. He just wasn't he just wasn't someone that was going to, and I think the money had very little to do with it because in reality, the money was not that much uh, in the grand scheme of things. And so, and so when you look then at this motivation, I think, I think you find out later, you'll see it in just a minute. And I'll point it out when we get there, but just listen to this thought now. I think the main thing that Judas did and the reason that he did it was that he really believed, like all of the disciples believed, that Jesus was, well, he was the Messiah, but he was going to be a Messiah like Moses. He was going to be one that would deliver them from being enslaved to the Romans like Moses delivered them from the Egyptians. And he kept waiting for Jesus to start, you know, when, start the plagues, let's go, you know, get it rolling because Judas was ready to lead a, re a revolution, a, re a revolt, Right? And that was what he was hoping for. And he was thinking, he was thinking that by doing this, it would force their hand 
into and, and start the rebellion or the re revolution from the Romans, right? And, and you'll see in just a minute that that's probably what happened. So Judas, Judas is, the difference between Judas and Peter, Judas is, he was premeditated. And uh, Peter was, is mainly out of fear, uh, which I think is interesting that Peter considered himself to be big, bad, tough, and strong. And fear was the one thing that took him down. And so, but anyway, let's go back to Judas here. So basically he began to look. In chapter 26, verse 20, he was at the table with Jesus. And Jesus is just making the statement, you know, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And, um, and they all became very sorrowful. You can read all about it in that next passage. And began to ask Jesus, is it I, is it I, is it I, is it I? And when Judas said, you know, is it I? And Jesus said that you, you know, you have said so. And so, and then Je you know, Jesus goes on to say, you know, um, it'd be better, you know, it'd be better for the one who betrays the son of man to never have been born. And then Ju Judas dismisses himself, right? And he, and he goes out, he goes out into the night. And that's found in another passage, not the Matthew one. And the other disciples just think Jesus is sending him on a mission. But he goes out to plan um, Jesus's capture. And so Judas knows that Jesus is going to go to Gethsemane, right? And so they're in Gethsemane and, and Judas says that's the perfect time because because that garden is, is out of the city and it's usually, it's usually deserted and, and they'll be alone. So if I take enough soldiers to overcome the disciples, then, then I've got no problem. So he tells them all about it. So he brings a squad out, you know, and, and Jesus goes with them. And obviously Judas kisses him and whatever. And they take him off. And then, um, and then Jesus is taken to a high priest's house and he's tried and convicted and and beatings and scourgings and mockings and all of the rest goes on. And then I want you to see something that happens in Matthew 27. Is that when, G when Judas, the betrayer, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, 27.3, he changed his mind. Okay, well, what did he think was going to happen? So something happened by seeing that Jesus was condemned. That's why most believed that he thought that, you know, the disciples would rise up and, and like Peter did, you know, pull out a sword and that Jesus with some of his powers that he had, you know, it would kind of force him into it. But he saw that nothing was happening, but he was being condemned and beaten and obviously going to be executed. So it says he changed his mind. Okay, I want to tell you that some of your translations say repented, and that's, that is just a terrible translation. Uh, there's a word for repentance in the Bible, and the word that's used here is not repentance. It is, it is remorse, sorrow, being sorry, uh, regret. That's the word. Because there's a key distinguisher here I don't want you to miss. So, when he saw he was condemned, it says he changed his mind, and he brought back the money, right? Brought back 30 pieces of silver, the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned. So he even confessed, right? Judas confessed. He was sorry for what he had done, and he confessed it, right? 
I have, I have, uh, I've sinned against by betraying innocent blood. And they said, that is the chief priests and the elders. Uh, this is what you want your religious leaders to be like, all right? Basically, who cares? You know, that's, that's on you, not us. And he threw the pieces down into the temple. And it says he went out and he hung himself. And so there's this picture of that he was so overcome by his own guilt uh, is that he inflicted upon himself the ultimate penalty, which still to this day, people will do that, but in more cases, it's incredible how people go into self-destruct mode and um, somehow think they deserve it. And he does, he did. But I don't want you to miss this, okay? This is huge. You're about to see something, but you have to hang with me just a few more minutes because this is going to relate to who Jesus and it's going to relate to Judas. And then number three is, is Peter, right? Peter. Peter was, was an interesting guy, but he was, this, he was just bold. He was big, bad, tough, strong. Um, and, and it was interesting that that his betrayal was something totally different. Let's take a look at it. It says, now Peter uh, was sitting outside. This is after Jesus had been arrested and he's being tried. And he was sitting outside in the courtyard of the place where Jesus was being tried. And a servant girl, the first two were little girls. I mean, Peter, come on. And so the servant girl basically came up to him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it in front of them all. And, uh, and says, I don't know what you mean. I don't even know what you're talking about. And then he went out to the entrance and another servant girl, right, uh, saw him. And she said to, him, to, to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, right? And again, they denied it with an oath this time. I swear, I promise on a stack of Bibles, I don't know the guy, that kind of stuff, right? And so he goes on and, you know, I don't know the man. And then after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are one of them because your accent gives you away. Okay? I understand this part of the scripture. Being from where I'm from, although my accent is mostly gone, but when I lived all my life in Tennessee, anywhere you'd go anywhere else, they'd turn around and look at you and say, where are you from? And um, because it gives you away. Well, there was a distinguishing accent of Galileans who were, that was much more rural and farmers than the southern part was in Israel. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. In other words, he threw a tirade, a profanity-laced tirade is basically what this says, and swore that he didn't know him. And as soon as that happened, the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and says he wept bitterly. So he was remorseful, right? He had regret. He'd, he'd made some real bad decisions. He'd trusted in his own strength and he'd found out he wasn't near as strong as he thought he was. And so you have then this, this picture. Now, I want you to think about this. 
Why is it that Peter, that Judas is known as the betrayer, but Peter is not known as the denier? Because Peter did something that Judas didn't do. He repented. You know, if you've never truly understood what the word repent, or if you think repent is just a religious word, um, you need to see, you need to see today. You're going to understand it today if you've been listening. What does repentance and faith really mean? Because when we say to you to put your, to repent, right, of your life and put your faith and trust in Christ, what does that look like? How does that look? Well, you're about to see one who did and one who didn't. Now, remember that Judas and Peter both were betrayers, deniers. They were both wrong, okay? They both were remorseful and sorry for what they did. But only one repented and came to Christ for forgiveness. You know, Judas could have returned to Christ and been forgiven, right, after the resurrection? Peter did. But what did Judas decide to do? Well, he, tr he decided to punish himself. Right? He decided to try to pay the cost himself. So he turned, he went a self-destructive route. Why? Because he thought he could pay for his own sin. And there's lots of people that do that today. There's probably lots of people in this room. I've got good news for you. You don't have to do that. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to punish yourself. Why? Because he already, he's already drunk the, he's already drunk the cup, drank the cup for you. Right? Why do you think you have to drink it? But it's not fair. Of course it's not fair. I don't deserve it. Of course you don't deserve it. Peter didn't deserve it, but he came to Christ. Repentance and trusted Christ. Lord, I know this is what I did, but it's not going to define who I am. Lots of you in this room have made a lot of bad decisions. You've betrayed others. You've hurt others. Perhaps you've said things. Again, it goes on and on and on. I'm not here. We're not here for that. But what I am here for is what does it mean to return or turn to him in repentance and faith? It means, Lord, this may be what I'm doing, but it's not who I am. Uh, this is not who I want to be. And put your faith and trust and start following him. Those who rely only on some decision they made when they were a kid, I don't know that they've ever truly trusted Christ. It hasn't resulted in following him, right? Because what is faith without following? It's just words. Well, I, I, I trusted Christ. Okay, yeah, but, but does that make its way into anything that you do? If it doesn't, it's just words. It's a powerful passage. This is a powerful passage because it gives you a vivid illustration of number one, the decision Christ made and the difference it has made in life, but everyone, a lot of people's life, but also the potential difference it could make in yours and the potential difference it could make in the next two we're talking about, Judas and Peter, but only made it in one because one decided that, that he didn't deserve it and he was going to, he was going to try to pay for it himself. You know, one of the greatest, that's why they call it good news. One of the greatest news, can I say it this way? Can I, one of the greatest news is I can share with you, okay? 
is you don't have to pay for it. It's time to abandon that direction of self-destruction. He's already, he's, already, he's already drank from the cup. You don't have to drink from it. In fact, I think it might, might almost be insulting if you try to drink some from it to somehow make yourself pay a little bit. Why? Because he's already paid for it. Don't you think what he did was enough? Yeah, it was enough. It was enough. Powerful story. Powerful picture. And it gives you a picture into what Christ came to do, which is obviously what we're talking about in this series. I just long for people to know what Jesus did for them when they truly understand it. Well, anyway, later, Peter was not only forgiven, this is the cool part about it, is that Peter was restored. John chapter 21 was at the resurrection and Jesus, they, after they had, had supper, Jesus came to Peter and said, said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, and says, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, you know, feed my lambs. And then he says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, John do you love me? And he said, uh, yes, Lord, uh, you know that I love you. He says, tend my sheep. And then he looks at him for a third time. Now notice that Usually, when people ask someone, do you love me, it's because of their own insecurities. I mean, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but that's kind of what that is. But Jesus is not having an insecurity problem here. This is not for him. This is for Peter. And he asks him three times. Why? He denied him three times. But I tell you, the third time, when somebody asks you, do you love me? It began to bother Peter because he really did love Jesus. But he had messed up big time. And he, he needed not only forgiveness, but he needed to be set free from the guilt that went with it. Does that make sense? It's one thing to be forgiven. The next thing is to, to be able to cut, cut away the baggage of guilt that you drag around with you, right? He doesn't want you to carry that either. So he looks at him, and then Peter was grieved and bothered him. And he says something I really like. He says, you know, because he asked him a third time, that's why he was grieved, and uh, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, and this is what he says, you know everything. In other words, you, you can look in my heart. You know if I love you or not. I can fool everybody else, but I can't fool you. And so he was so confident in his love for Christ that he said, just look, look inside, right? And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then he goes on to tell him some other things about some of the things Peter is going to do. And Peter was going to do incredible things. Uh, at Pentecost, he was going to be filled with the Spirit. He was going to stand up and boldly share the gospel. And 3,000 people were going to come to know Christ. That was Peter. And if you read through the book of Acts and you see how God used this man named Peter in such an incredible way that he started out being a betrayer. Almost seems strange, doesn't it? He's not even remembered for that, right? And if anybody does remember it, they just say, you know, God had to break him first before he could use him. Decisions that define but I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm going to say decisions that you allow to define you, right? Who do you want to be? 
Are we going to wallow around over here? And get, you know, I found either people wallow in, 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 in guilt and self-pity or they blame everybody else. But it's the same concept, right? It's the same need. It's the same picture of the reason Jesus did what he did. But this is a great picture from our forgiveness that we just did in the first of the year. I got more responses. I'm still getting them. Got one yesterday from that forgiveness series because it touches everybody in the room. This is just an addition to that because I want you to know that Jesus came to, he drank the cup so that you could be set free, but he just doesn't want you to be set free. He wants you to live free. There's a difference because lots of people who are free don't live free. So it's not just to be set free, but it's to live that way. And so eventually Peter got through this and it didn't define who he was. So as we close today, there's this beautiful picture about who Christ is and really what he came to do. And that the garden was a real pivotal time. And the decision that he made has defined so many of us and has the potential of defining many more. And you can either pick, you can either pick the way of Peter or the way of Judas, because we're all, we're all sinners, right? We all make the mistake. We all made lots of bad decisions. You know, it's interesting to me how that some of us compare that we're, we just haven't made near as many bad decisions as you have. I, I've never understood that concept. You know, that somehow uh, I, only owe, uh, I only owe 10 million and you owe 100 million. All right, well, good. Can you pay it back? No. Then what does it matter? You need a gift, right? You need something done on your behalf anyway. I'm sorry, I digress. But I think the picture here is which direction do you go? And am I going to do it myself or am I going to trust him and follow him? It's pretty neat, pretty incredible to think about. That is, that is the picture, right? That is the picture of the garden. All right, wonderful. Let's all stand. We'll have a closing word of prayer. All right, if you're a guest with us today, um, I would love to have the opportunity to meet you. I'm headed to the guest reception right out the middle doors. You'll see me in the little glassed-in room. There's never been a time in your life you put your faith and trust in him. And I'm not talking about denominations or being Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian or Baptist, but it's his message to you. He drank the cup for you. Has there ever been a time you've trusted him, right? There'll be some pastors down here afterwards who would love to, right here, love to talk to you, or you can pick up a booklet out there that says, Got Questions, and it just shares more about what Christ came to do. All right, God bless, God bless. Uh, you gonna come up and close us? All right, come on, Jim. Oh, hurry it up, hurry it up. All right. And I, again, I'm heading back there. But God bless you guys. Hey, stay faithful to these, um, these to Easter. It, it'll, it'll, it'll open your eyes the more you know about just how much God loved you to do, uh, to do what he did on your behalf. It's pretty neat. All right, Jim, why don't you close us? And let's pray together today. Our heads are bowed just for a minute. Right where you're at, very important that we don't just hear the Bible, but we make application. Do you understand that in the garden, Jesus delivered us by his grace? In the garden, we find, of course, Judas betraying Christ. And his sin was a destroying, self-destruction, self-destroying sin. Maybe you're here today, you've been carrying it yourself. 
as pastor has said. You're trying to work it out yourself. You're trying to turn over that new leaf yourself. You're trying not to blame yourself. You're trying to get some help yourself. You're trying to work it out yourself. Well, all you're going to do is destroy yourself. And what you need to do is as Peter has done. Peter came to Christ and said, God, deliver me by your grace and forgive me. Maybe you're here today and you've got some issues and some mistakes and some sin in your life and you need to take it to the Lord. I would encourage you today as we pray that you would take this to Christ and let God forgive you and give you strength in your life that you would love him and live for him and appreciate his great gift to you. Father, today we thank you that you loved us. You took upon yourself our sin. You drank of the cup willingly. And Lord, we thank you that you died for us having no sin of your own. And we look at people like Judas who uh, had remorse. He felt bad, and yet he did not come in repentance to you. He tried to get it taken care of himself, ultimately destroying his own life. And Peter, Lord, who would betray you, deny you, would repent and for ask forgiveness and be forgiven and be used in a wonderful way. God, help us as mature people to understand that we do mis make mistakes. We do sin. We do hurt people, and we are hurt. And so, Lord, help us to learn to bring this to you and to trust you and to have your way in our lives. Save these today that are listening that do not know you as Savior, nor this grace. Help them to settle it today. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. See you next time.